podcast, Star Studies, literally, with George Bendo, Libby Jones, Indy the Clerk, and Mark Perver. The podcast, February 2014, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Indy, and joining me in the studio today are Libby and Mark. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time... Libby interviews Professor Paul Crowther about the most massive stars in the universe, and Dr. George Bender gets to grips with your astronomical questions. But first, Mark talks to Dr. Ian Harrison about his work at JBCA in this month's Job Bite. For this month's Job Bite, I'm interviewing Dr. Ian Harrison, who quite recently joined the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics as a postdoctoral researcher. So welcome. Hello. Thank you. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you're working on? What I have been working on since I uh, came and joined you is mostly the superclass experiment, which uh, Manchester is leading, very heavily involved in. And what that is, uh, is an experiment to try and measure a weak gravitational lensing signal in the uh, radio galaxies that we see in the universe. There are a lot of weak gravitational lensing experiments which have previously been done using optical galaxies that we can see in the universe. And it's a very good way of constraining theories of, of dark energy and dark matter and how the universe has evolved but um, we're also interested in looking at the same effect on radio galaxies rather than simply optical ones. So can you give us an idea of what weak lensing involves? Weak lensing is primarily a way to learn about the distribution of dark matter within the universe. And dark matter, very obviously, in the name, we can't see it, we can't see its interaction with light directly, but what we can see is the bending effect that it has on light. So if you have a big lump of dark matter in front of some luminous galaxy behind it, then the lump of dark matter will have this lensing effect on the light of the galaxy behind it and bend it in kind of arc shapes around the clump of dark matter. And that's a, a very good way for us to learn about how much dark matter there is in the universe and where it is, because it enables us to measure directly where the dark matter is rather than having to make some uh, assumptions about the relationship between where dark matter and where luminous matter is in the universe. Using this weak lensing technique, we can see very directly where the, the dark matter is due to, as I say, the, the effect it has on the light coming from the background galaxies. And that bending, it's not doing that because it's dark matter as opposed to any other sort of matter. It's just that there's more of the dark matter than, than yeah. anything else. Yeah, so... Right? so any matter which feels the force of gravity will have this lensing effect on light coming from behind it. It just so happens that uh, we expect there to be uh, significantly more dark matter in the universe, and so the vast majority of the lensing effect comes from the dark matter, yeah. And if we imagine a galaxy sort of sitting in a big halo of dark matter, does that mean that the lensing effect you're looking for is caused by the galaxy's halo? Or is it just caused by other dark matter that's somewhere in between us and that galaxy? That's kind of something that you you have to deal with. So you can see where a galaxy will be, the halo around it will be a very concentrated patch of dark matter. And that can cause these very strong gravitational lensing events where you see these very spectacular banana shapes, uh, essentially, the, the background galaxies get lensed into. But all of the other places in the universe where there aren't these halos around galaxies, 
we expect you can go away and look at uh, pictures from the Millennium Simulation as a very good illustration. We expect there to be this kind of cosmic web of filaments and halos with voids in between, and all of that dark matter will be creating this lensing. And one of the things that you, you have to worry about when you do gravitational lensing is that we only see the total effect of all the lensing between where the galaxy emitted its light and where we see it here you're looking in one direction, so you see the effect of all of the dark matter along that direction, whether it's very concentrated or whether it's more diffuse. And all that stuff together is what causes what we call in the weak lensing. So all light in the universe will have been lensed to, to some extent, and the distinction between strong lensing and weak lensing tends to be that a strong lensing event will create more than one image of one background object. If you show someone a picture of gravitational lensing, you tend to show them a strong lensing event because it's very obvious. In weak lensing, we're not looking so much for the distortions of an individual object. We're looking for the average distortions over a whole population of objects. Because although the distortion on a single object might be incredibly small, um, and also we don't necessarily know about what the shape of the galaxy was to begin with, if we see... Uh, over some patch of the sky that all of the galaxies in that patch of sky tend more than average to have a, a certain amount of distortion, then that enables us to say something about the, the dark matter between us and those galaxies. So you're looking for a distortion of shape? Yes, the change in the amount of ellipticity of, of the galaxy is what, we, is what we look for. So that's kind of the smallest effect before you get these the bending effect into these banana shapes. You just get... a change in the ellipticity of the galaxy. Okay. And we interviewed um, Joe Zuntz a couple of months ago about uh, the Dark Energy Survey, which was looking at weak gravitational lensing using optical telescopes. Yes. And what you're doing is like a counterpart to that, it sounds like. In what ways can you put those data together? Optical weak lensing has been the mainstream way of doing weak lensing for the past few years. It's only recently that we started being able to do it even in the optical. And the reason that it's it's taken place in the optical is because we can simply see enough of those background galaxies in the optical in order to be able to measure the shapes of enough of them in order to be able to get a good signal for our weak lensing. The reason it hasn't been done with radio galaxies before is that there simply haven't been big enough radio telescopes to get the necessary number of background sources to be able to see this small but coherent distortion in the shapes of the galaxies. But um, I'm sure people have probably spoken on the Judcast before about the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, which is an incredibly huge radio telescope which is going to be built in the coming decade. And that will uh, allow us to do wheat lensing with radio galaxies because it will be able to see enough of them. And the project that I'm working on is using the E-Merlin telescope within the UK, which, whilst it probably won't see enough galaxies uh, do a large enough survey to tell us anything particularly new about cosmology, it will enable us to develop the kind of techniques which we're going to need to use for the, the radio weak lensing surveys, which will happen with the SKA and will do interesting cosmology. So we're kind of breaking fairly new ground for weak lensing in doing it in the radio had has been demonstrated maybe once before but that was kind of a, a low significance detection and people are 
hoping that it's going to be a, a very big piece of science for the SKA to do. So we need to develop the, as I said, the necessary techniques and skills and expertise and things. And obviously you're interested in cosmology, so you're doing this on very large scales. What could we work out about cosmology, say, when the SKA comes along and lets us do big weak lensing studies? So as I said, weak lensing is a very good way of mapping where the dark matter is in the universe. And if you can map where the dark matter is in the universe, then that can actually tell you quite a lot about dark energy, which obviously, as Joe came and spoke to you about the dark energy survey, even though he was mapping dark matter, what we can do is we can see how the structures which exist in dark matter have changed and grown over time. And many things to do with cosmology will affect exactly how that process of dark matter structures growing will happen. So as gravity pulls these dark matter structures together to form ever larger and larger halos and filaments and voids, the expansion of the universe and dark energy which causes the rate of expansion of the universe to change essentially fights against that. So if we can see a history of how quickly and in what kind of shapes the dark matter structures have formed, then that can give us a, a very good um, handle on the nature of dark energy. Oh, very interesting. Well, I thought I'd just ask you one more thing, which was about um, what you actually worked on just before you came to the University of Manchester. And it sounds as though it was in some ways related because you were also then interested in the cosmological history of the universe. And what you were looking at as I understood, was the sizes of clusters of galaxies and trying to work out, again, does that fit in with how we think that the universe is expanding and the rate at which it's going and um, and how it sort of formed? Yes, so before I came to Manchester when I was in Cardiff working on my PhD, that was about clusters of galaxies and, in particular, how large the largest one should be, how massive the most massive galaxy clusters in the universe should be because it turns out that a lot of the theories which extend on our vanilla model of cosmology affect how these very large structures form in the universe galaxy clusters are the largest gravitationally bound uh, structures in the universe and it turns out that a lot of the sensible modifications that people can think of to our vanilla model of cosmology, one of their principal effects is to change the absolute numbers of these very, very large clusters. So it turns out that if you want to look for slightly uh, unusual things in cosmology, these exceptionally massive clusters are a very good place to look, be that whether you're looking for interesting models of dark energy or potentially modifications to gravity, or if you're interested in the period of inflation in the very, very early universe, there are certain things to do with the statistics of the dark matter structures which are left behind by inflation, which change what we would expect the mass of the most massive cluster in the universe to be. So I took a type of statistics called extreme value statistics, which is been very popular historically in places like uh, finance and hydrology, people predicting floods and things such as this. And I took that and applied it to the field of, of cosmology and worrying about these very large galaxy clusters. So you're literally looking at the most extreme members of a group of objects, in this case, 
galaxy clusters, you're looking at the, the very tail end, the most massive ones, and trying to find out whether they ought to exist based on your theory. Yes. So from our standard model of cosmology, we can predict very well that as you go to higher and higher masses, the number of galaxy clusters which we should expect to be able to observe with those masses drops off very, very quickly. But as I say, some of the alternative extensions to cosmology change to quite a large degree just how quickly that drop-off happens. So these very rare, very unusual galaxy clusters are a very good place to look for these modifications. And did they pose any serious threat to the current cosmological model? Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, uh-huh. uh, no, they didn't. They are fairly consistent with the standard model of cosmology. Oh, well, it's good to know anyway, yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. I can see there's a lot of subtle statistics involved in in many of these things, so we wish you luck with the future of Radio Weak Lensing. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. Now, here's Libby interviewing Professor Paul Crowther about massive stars. Joining me on the Jogcast today is Professor Paul Crowther from the University of Sheffield. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Hello, pleased to be here. You work on massive stars or monster stars. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and what you mean by this? Yeah, so most stars in the universe, certainly the Milky Way, where we can actually see uh, low mass stars, most stars are less massive than the Sun uh, and they're dwarf stars and so they're smaller than the Sun, less luminous than the Sun and their lifetime is longer than the sun. So they, so a star with a mass uh, below the sun's mass will have lifetimes of tens or even hundreds of billions of years. So that, they're the most common stars out there, but they're also the kind of faintest. Whereas I kind of work on the stars at the opposite extreme in mass range. Stars which have masses uh, of, I say, 100 solar masses or even more. And, the, and these stars are the rarest stars. They're also the brightest stars, so they might shine a million or even sometimes maybe even 10 million times brighter than the sun, which means we can see them quite far away. And they also have the shortest lifetimes, and the lifetimes of the most massive stars um, is measured in only a few million years rather than billions of years like the sun. Is there a limit to how big a star can be? Well, that's something that I'm trying to look into right now. There's there's certainly a limit to the lower mass end, uh, and that's kind of the division between brown dwarfs below something like 80 Jupiter masses or just below a tenth of a sun's mass. So it's definitely a lower mass limit. At the upper mass end, as far as we can tell, we seem to find a few stars with masses of 100, 200, just about maybe 300 solar masses. But above that, we've looked and we haven't really seen anything above that. So it might just be that stars that you know, stars with masses of a thousand solar masses may just not exist. But they might not exist because they're not allowed to exist, but because of the way stars form. Stars tend to form in clusters. They tend to form um, out of a, uh, a collapsing, cold, dense gas cloud. And so because they're forming together, it might just be that they're kind of competing for the same amount of gas. And they have to, massive stars have to accrete really quickly because their lifetimes are so short. And in fact, they probably have to accrete all their mass within only... 100,000 years or so. So by accrete, you mean gain mass? Gain mass. So, so the way that ha- we think star formation happens is that we think a cold, dense gas cloud kind of collapses and fragments into kind of down to kind of tiny seeds. And those seeds might be uh, as, as low in mass as, I don't know, uh, 10 Jupiter masses or something. And then when those seeds stop fragmenting, 
They can then build up mass by accreting, and uh, and little guys might accrete over a very long time. You know, the sun might have formed in 10 million years, whereas these high-mass stars have to accrete a lot, of, have to grab a lot of gas in a very short amount of time. And it might just be that they don't exceed a certain limit, not because they can't, but because they're really all competing for the same for the same reservoir of uh, of cold, dense molecular gas. In the Milky Way, our own galaxy, do we have any? Really good measurements on how massive a star could be. Yeah, so so the the Milky Way is forming stars, and it's forming stars at a rate of something like one solar mass per year at the moment. But it's doing it in kind of pockets of star-forming regions, and the Orion Nebula cluster is the youngest nearby high-mass star-forming region. But the most massive star in Orion, which is a quite a small region, is a few tens of uh, solar masses. Where there are other regions. Um, both in the spiral arms and in the centre of the Milky Way, where we have much more impressive star clusters have just formed. I would say the best place with the most accurate stellar masses for the most massive stars is a region in a southern sky called NGC 3603. And this is a region which has probably formed 20,000 stars over the last million years or so. Uh, and this happens to have a, a close binary system, in other words, two stars very close together, which are in orbit around each other. And what's good about it is we can see both stars in their light and in their spectra, and we can see them orbiting each other, and, and they eclipse each other. And so we can actually get very accurate masses for those um, stars. And, those, and, the, and the star's mass comes out to be more or less 100 solar masses for each star. And that, that is a pretty accurate, dynamically derived mass. And that's the most accurate masses we have for the most massive stars in Milky Way. So if more massive stars are rarer, and they need bigger cluster sizes from which to form. Where would we go looking for these? Where we want to find, to look for the most massive stars, we need to find, you're, you're right, that we need to find massive clusters, um, but ones which are nearby so we can resolve the stars, and ones which are young, because the lifetimes of these stars are so short that if we find a cluster that's 10 million years old, the highest mass stars already died. So we have to find massive, young, nearby star clusters, and so... Actually, the, 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 there are better places to look than our own Milky Way. So nearby galaxies? So nearby galaxies. So, in fact, the nearest big star forming region in our own galactic neighbourhood um, is actually within the, the large Magellanic Cloud. Again, another object we can see from the southern sky. So it's, it's, it's quite close, uh, and it's this giant star forming region which is maybe 100 times bigger than the Orion Nebula in physically terms. Uh, and it, it's actually about a thousand times intrinsically brighter. So it's, it's much bigger and brighter than the Orion Nebula. It's just a hundred times further away. And in the center of that star-forming region, there's a real heavyweight star cluster with some very massive stars in it in the center. And do massive stars tend to, while they're forming clusters, do they tend to form by themselves or they form together with other companion stars? So I, I would say we, we probably used to think that most formed on their own within these clusters. But I would say more recent work in the last few years seems to find that that they actually more or less, most of them are formed in a binary system with another member. Now, again, we when we used to think of massive stars, we thought most formed with equal mass binaries, in other words, two stars around the same mass. In fact, it turns out that there's a widespread of relative masses. And so a 100 solar mass star might form as equally on its own or with a 10 solar mass companion or a 100 solar mass companion. So there's a whole range of possibilities. Do we know how they form? I would say there are, there are, there are issues relating to star formation in general, actually, how you end up with these very 
very tenuous cold regions ending up with kind of with the, with the dimensions and densities of stars. But it's especially hard for high mass stars, partly because they're so rare, which means they're far away, which means they're hard to see when they're forming. And when they're forming, and they form so quickly, they're formed within, behind, within these dense, dusty gas regions. And so we, it's very hard to see to probe down to the region where the actual star is uh, is forming and uh, the protostar is getting between the cold, dense gas cloud to the, actually the main sequence as it, as it burns hydrogen on the main sequence. Uh, and the complication with high-mass stars is that when these stars get relatively hot at their surface, they kind of inherently drive away material. So you have this balance between trying to accrete mass to build up in mass, but also at the same time it's kind of drive when it gets hot... It's, it's radiation pressure is driving away stuff. So it's kind of the complication with high mass stars that they form quickly and that they're, you kind of wonder how they can build up to masses of, of 50 or 100 or more ton of masses. But theoretically, there's no fixed limit on how big they could grow. I don't think there's a fixed limit from a theoretical perspective. I think the reality is, though, that they, since they form in these cold, dense regions, I think they are, in the end, competing for a finite amount of fuel you know, of, of, of material. And so what we tend to often find is that the the highest mass members of a star cluster, whether it be in Orion or whether it be in, in this giant stellar nursery in the LMC, we tend to find that the highest mass stars in the centre. And that's because maybe because if, if they formed in the centre, then they will they had the ability to accrete the most material, which is again sitting in the centre of this proto cluster. On the other end of the lifetime, we're kind of familiar with the idea that massive stars explode as a supernova, then create a black hole. Will these monster stars create have a similar death? Yeah. So, so, so the the deaths of of let's say most stars in the universe, ones below about ten times the mass of the sun, is basically a kind of they go up with a with a with a, a whimper really, where they they kind of fade away as a white dwarf. The stars above probably about eight or nine times the mass of the sun. We think mostly they get to a point where they end up with iron in the centres and they undergo what we call core collapse, which means that the core collapses down to a neutron star and might, in the end, accrete mass to produce a black hole. And then there's a corresponding supernova explosion from the envelope of the star, which produces a um, mostly a, a, what we call a type 2 supernova with hydrogen or sometimes a type 1 supernova without hydrogen. But it may be that some of these real monster stars... Uh, die in a quite a different way and produce uh, what we call a, a superluminous supernovae where the conditions in the centre near the end of their life when you get basically you can get what's called electrons and positrons these, part- these tiny particles forming through basically the high temperatures in their cores and that in principle could allow these stars to blow up with very bright supernovae and not leave a, a neutron star or a black hole behind. So is there any way, any remnants we could be looking for to see evidence of these past? Yeah, so so there have been claims of such, that some of the very bright supernova we've seen uh, in the last few years were such objects. But I would say the evidence within the last, certainly within the last year or two, suggests that maybe there weren't these very exotic supernovae. Um, it may be that they're, they're very bright for a different reason. Um, so I'd say right now the jury's out as to whether such objects have been seen, but it's likely actually that they, that these weird supernovae, very bright supernovae, which didn't leave anything behind, might, might have actually occurred in the early universe. The first stars, we think, had a characteristic mass much higher than that of stars forming now in the Milky Way. And we think that 
rather than a typical star being having a mass of half that of a sun, it may have had a mass of uh, 10 or even 100 times the mass of a sun. And those guys might have blown up through these, some of those might have blown up in this very exotic uh, bright supernova. Can I ask you now a bit, a bit more about the methods you do to sort of weigh these stars in general? Because they're very, very hot. Um, and if we look at their, their signatures, how do we differentiate them from another, let's say, less massive star? Yeah, so it's not it's not easy because um, if you think about the sun, most of its energy comes out in the optical, so we can we can see its light uh, because it's coming out primarily in the visible part of the spectrum. Cool stars, their energy peaks out peaks in the infrared, so objects like Betelgeuse, red red giants, red supergiants. Whereas hot stars and massive stars spend most of the time as as blue stars. Most of their energy comes out in the ultraviolet, or even a lot of those stars primarily in the what we call the extreme ultraviolet. And so we, we can't, unfortunately, see that energy because it gets absorbed by the interstellar hydrogen. So we have to be kind of smart as to how we figure out how hot they are, and then if we know how far away they are, to work out how luminous they are, and then to work out how massive they are. So it's very steps we use. And for the massive, massive stars, we use the not so much the continuum output, which is basically... Um, very little compared to the total output, but we use basically the the conditions uh, in their atmospheres that we can infer based on their spectra. So we take spectra, whether it be in the ultraviolet or in the from space and the optical from the ground or in the infrared, and we can and, and the features we see in the spectra we, that allows us to work out our temperature, and then if you know how far away it is, works out our luminosity, and then we compare generally compare that with a model to work out its uh, its current mass, and then relate that back to its initial mass. So that's what we use for the very more the more distant objects. When we're looking at objects, it's actually easier sometimes doing that uh, for objects in other galaxies uh, compared to those in the Milky Way, because actually, until Gaia has done its survey, we we don't know distances to very remote objects in the Milky Way very well, uh, and actually, we know distances to objects in nearby galaxies actually much better than we do to many objects in our own Milky Way. Uh, another complication is that, of course, these things, the hot things, are emitting most of the light in the ultraviolet. And the ultraviolet um, is a, a part of the, the spectrum or the energy output of stars, which, if there's dust between that object and us, it means that that uh, light gets absorbed by the dust um, between it and us, which means that actually, and because we're in the Milky Way's disk, which is full of dust, actually it turns out that it's really hard getting ultraviolet information on hot stars uh, in the Milky Way. Whereas, for example, looking at, say, hot stars in the in the imaginary clouds, which is out of our galactic disk, um, actually we can get much easier access from space to the ultraviolet light of such stars, uh, because even though they're much further away and so they're fainter, there's not that, that dust in the way. Is there a way for even more distant galaxies just to use their combined light to see how massive an object may be? Yeah, so it's, it's really tough to try and... I mean, it's, it's hard enough working out the properties of an individual star in a resolved star cluster, which is nearby. Some work I've been doing, which is using uh, Hubble, um, looking at the ultraviolet light of individual stars in a resolved cluster, when I kind of look at the contribution to that integrated light of the star cluster from individual stars, it turns out that there are kind of features which only the most massive young stars show. And so when we look at then a an unresolved, more distant star cluster uh, in another galaxy, there's kind of a hint, maybe, that we can use the presence or absence of certain spectral features to actually say, 
that this young cluster has or hasn't got very massive stars within it. So in summary, to find the most massive stars, we need to have a big star-forming cluster that has to be relatively young, in fact, very young. Very young, yeah. And still quite close by. Ideally close by, so we can actually see the individual stars. Um, but there's a hint that we might be able to get information about the most massive stars because they're the brightest stars. So even though they're the rarest, they're actually the brightest stars in their star cluster. So the few brightest stars in a young cluster, the few brightest, few most massive stars dominate the light, actually. So, I mean, for example, in the star cluster in the LMC that I've obtained ultraviolet observations of with Hubble, I looked at the 100 brightest stars, and it turns out that maybe the 10 brightest stars contribute half the light to the entire cluster. So actually the few brightest ones really are real beacons because their luminosities are you know, many millions of times brighter than the sun. So finally, I want to ask you a, a bit of an outlier question. What odds do you think you will have on finding a star above 200 solar masses in the next 10 years or so? Well, we, we think we found a few which were probably that sort of mass um, when they were born. So a few objects in the LMC, a few objects maybe in the Milky Way, but the, the the challenge is that with the big new telescopes, with James Webb and with the ELT coming online in the next decade, of course the natural next step would be to look not in the Milky Way or the or the imaginary clouds, but to look at the, the brightest stars in, for example, Andromeda or in M33, because that's an order of magnitude further away than the imaginary clouds. But the problem is there aren't really any super bright young star clusters in those galaxies. So unfortunately for us to really make progress in terms of advancing this subject, we have to go an order of magnitude again in distance out to kind of many uh, millions of light years away. So I th my suspicion is that we have to make do with what we have right now and to get more observations of, um, of relatively nearby objects to establish whether they're binaries maybe or to uh, to see if they are single or maybe even if they were, if they built up their mass not through them being born massive, but actually whether they've undergone a stellar merger, and that's the possibility. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Pleasure. Thanks for that, Libby. Now, we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the things that wouldn't go anywhere else. It's the odds and ends. So, my odds and end is talking about the near-Earth asteroid, Ito Koa, and I apologise for that pronunciation. And this asteroid has previously been visited by Japanese spacecraft in 2005 and has had its surface measured. So following this observation with this, um, this satellite that has brought back samples as well so we know a lot about the composition of this asteroid, had follow-up observations measuring the rate at which the asteroid spins and by measuring, combining these measurements of its surface and its spin rate over, some, over time we've discovered the first evidence that asteroids can have a highly varied internal structure what's going on is it's a bit like shining a torch on a propeller if you have a really intense torch shining on a propeller for long enough it will start spinning and this is what these observations are doing so it's been measuring some tiny tiny variations in the acceleration and the spin of this asteroid uh, it's something like 45 milliseconds per year change in its rate of acceleration uh, and these observations have been going on from 2001 to 2013 and using these it's been introduced that the asteroid has a very, very different internal structure. It's sort of peanut-shaped and has one end that's very dense and another end which is slightly less dense. And I, I thought this was just a very cool set of observations 
uh, and it's the first time that we've been able to see the internal structure of an asteroid and it may even give us an idea of how some the solar system forms and how different bodies collide so it could have been a bigger object that had uh, fallen apart and then combined together again to form these two bits that have created this sort of peanutty shaped asteroid with these two different densities or it could have been that two rocks have collided together and then stuck uh, to form this object and though it's only a small asteroid it gives us an idea of what's going on and it may some future missions would be kind of cool to see what other asteroids are composed of and if we can do this with maybe some some other material as well because it's very important what asteroids are made of and especially if we ever want to mine them yeah <laughs> it's so strange having two bits stuck together it's not like an inside and an outside it's just a mashup of two different things well, there's some companies that want to try and make money from mining the materials but other researchers have said well watch out because you might go there and it might not be anything particularly valuable it's made of so anything about the composition is always important well what we've learned from what the sample that was brought back by the spacecraft is actually that the surface composition is relatively the same all across it it's made of the same type of chondrules so the surface is the same so you have this outer layer but actually the bulk densities inside what it's composed of is very different which is the intriguing part amazing nice one my other end this time is about the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, also known as LADY. Uh, I think we've mentioned it before in a previous podcast. And so it's a NASA mission that's been sent up uh, in moon orbit to essentially look at the uh, the dust and the atmosphere that exist around the moon. Because it's something I learned the, part of the last time we talked about it, that the moon actually does have a very, very light atmosphere. And recently, Lady has beamed back its first pictures of the moon and the stars down to Earth. And the reason it's done this uh, is actually to take pictures of the surrounding stars, make a map of the stars around itself, and actually use that to determine its orientation to a very precise degree. So these are its. Uh, this is done by its onboard cameras known as star trackers, and they use the pictures of the surrounding star field so that the spacecraft can actually calculate its orientation. This happens many times a minute, so it's constantly updating. And essentially, the whole mission is depending on these star trackers because a precise measurement of the orientation will then give you precise measurements uh, on all the other instruments uh, on the spacecraft. They're not actually that good at taking pictures of the moon's surface itself, although the surface does appear in these pictures. And they don't use ordinary cameras, but they actually have a very, very wide-angle lens in order to capture a very large chunk of the night sky um, in one frame. The pictures that have been beamed down, uh, there will be a link to them on the on the show notes. They were taken at one minute intervals, and you can see the northwestern hemisphere of the moon, as well as so the the main stars in the sky around that. It was traveling at about sixty miles a minute, or hundred roughly a hundred kilometers a minute, uh, while it was snapping these these shots. So they were taking they were taken during the lunar night, but the surface is actually illuminated by instead of moonlight, what we would call what we get during the night is called Earth light because during the lunar night, light from the, reflected light from the sun bounces off the Earth and 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 is visible in the the lunar night sky, which uh, is a pretty cool thing to think about. And so it's it captured a few craters, um, some mountain ranges, and the Star Trackers are going to keep operating um, while Lady 
measures the chemical composition of the atmosphere. And it's also going to try to collect and analyze samples of lunar dust particles in the atmosphere. And one of its one of the main questions that it wants to answer is basically asking what if if lunar dust, when it gets sort of electrically charged by sunlight, if it's responsible for the pre-sunrise glow above the lunar horizon that can be seen in uh, in several of the Apollo missions, basically the astronauts before the sun rose above the horizon, they could see this sort of glow in the distance. And so, a lady's going to try and and see whether the 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 dust particles in the atmosphere were responsible for that. Wow, I didn't think the moon really had any atmosphere. So, what what's it made of? Is it dust that's kicked up or? So, I mean, it's not an atmosphere in the conventional, I mean, in the way most people think about it. It's it's not really made up of gas or anything like that. It's just a bunch of molecules, mainly dust, uh, that's been kicked up from the surface for various reasons. One of them is um, this so-called outgassing, which is release of, of radioactive gases from the moon rocks and, and sort of below the moon, because there's still radioactive decay in some rocks going on. And then... Another main source of this is when micro micrometeorites or small rocks hit the moon, they basically kick up dust, and because there's so little moon gravity to, to retain them close to the surface, they can sort of float upwards, um, but get suspended close-ish to the moon. And also, solar wind and sunlight can sort of displace um, microscopic or even sort of molecular-sized particles. Um, this produces an atmosphere of sorts, but it's it's nothing to do with what most people imagine when they think of an atmosphere. Well, that's cool, because I didn't know anything about the, the moon's atmosphere, so that's really interesting. My odd end is all about a neutron star, So I love neutron stars, and this particular one has been observed to have an unusual jet of particles shooting out of it. So a neutron star is produced in a supernova explosion when a massive star gets to the end of its life and explodes, and this leaves behind a supernova remnant, um, which... There's a really nice picture of that I'll post online, and it's called the Lighthouse Nebula. And then a little distance away, flying out of it, is the actual core of the dead star, which is a neutron star. And it looks on the picture like a little white streak. Uh, and it's one of the interesting things is it's flying out very quickly, about 1,000 kilometers per second out of this nebula, which to begin with is quite strange because we don't really understand why supernova explosions kick out the neutron stars at their cores they'd be expected to be sort of symmetrical, which would mean the neutron star would stay where it was. But instead, they regularly get flicked out. I'm very surprised by that. I, I would expect it to sort of stay in the centre of the heart of the explosion, but the speed that's being kicked out, yeah, it must be some whack. Yeah, a 1,000 kilometres per second. And they say it's supersonic, which means that as it travels through the nebula, it's faster than the local speed of sound in that nebula as well. Um, and then, even better, in the picture, there's sort of a pinky-purply jet that's shooting out pretty much at right angles, at 90 degrees, to the direction that the neutron star is flying in. And this is the really unusual thing that a group of astronomers have observed um, for the first time. So as a, a neutron star spins, because they spin very, very quickly, um, they sometimes give out beams of radio waves from their magnetic poles, and then we may observe them as pulsars. So we might get pulses of radiation as they spin. But there's also something called a pulsar wind nebula, where they actually spew out charged particles as well. And the general idea is that those come out in jets um, along the rotation axis of the pulsar and also in a sort of ring around the equator of the pulsar as well. And so these jets have been observed before, but they've almost always been pretty much lined up with the direction that the pulsar or neutron star is flying in. So any 
normal model of a supernova says that as the pulsar or neutron star gets kicked out, its rotation axis that it's spinning around should be in the same direction it's moving, and so should the jet that then comes out of it, the pulsar wind nebula. And instead, in this case, it's flying off in one direction, and the jet's coming out at right angles to it, and nobody really knows why. Um, and the people who have written the paper on this observation, they say it could be a sign of exotic physics, <laughs> which means some kind of crazy thing happened in that supernova we don't really understand, but someone's probably got a theory about it. Um, and also, it's just nice because they made observations using uh, gamma rays, uh, a telescope called Int- Integral, X-rays using Chandra, and also radio waves using the Australia Telescope Compact Array. This particular neutron star hasn't been observed to have any pulses, so at the moment it's not seen as a pulsar. So there we go. It's a neutron star with a perpendicular jet. So behaving a little bit weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> and creating always... a spectacular image. It's a really nice image. I'm definitely putting that in the show notes. Nice. And now, from one exotic object to another, Dr. George Bender answers your astronomical questions in this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Steve Armin in California. The February talk with Dr. Messenger about using laser interferometers to detect gravitational waves got me thinking. Since gravitational waves distort space-time, would it not be possible to measure time being warped instead of looking for mechanical change in the length of the laser beam? I see multiple problems with this that make it incredibly difficult to use time dilation to measure these types of oscillations. First, as you mentioned, you have to correct for relativistic effects. If the magnitude of this correction and the uncertainty in the correction is much higher than the signal expected from the gravitational waves, you will not be able to detect gravitational waves very easily. Uh, Second, you just can't measure the time at the locations of these two clocks. You actually have to transmit the times from both clocks to an observer. So you can see the shift in the time of one clock relative to the other. In transmitting the clock signals, you will need to convert the signals into electromagnetic waves, and the time it takes these electromagnetic waves to travel to the observer will also be affected by the gravitational waves. Uh, Given this, it just seems much easier to look at the interference pattern formed after recombining the two parts of a laser beam that have passed through a beam splitter. Our next question is from Sean Mulcahy, who asks, Most stars are in binary systems, but our own sun is more unusual as it's on its own. I've heard it said that it could be part of a binary system, but we just haven't detected our partner yet. What's the current thinking on this idea? I had not encountered any discussion on this topic before, but apparently it's a well-known issue in stellar astronomy. Charles Lada, in a paper published in 2006 in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, provides a good review on this topic. Uh, In his introduction, he even comments on how people had previously expected most stars to be binary stars and how the sum was thought of as an unusual exception. But when you dig into the data, only slightly more than half of all sun-like stars are thought to be uh, parts of binary star systems. About the same fraction of more massive hydrogen-burning stars are in binary systems. But when you look at red dwarfs, only about 20% of those stars are in binary systems. Given this, it's not too surprising that the Sun is not in the binary system after all. It also seems very unlikely that the Sun has an undetected stellar companion. 
if it had a uh, hydrogen burning uh, stellar companion, we would have already seen it and would probably even have a mythological name. If it was a brown dwarf, which is a type of object that's smaller than the star, not massive enough for nuclear fusion to start in its core, then it is possible that it would have been difficult to detect with optical telescopes, but it almost certainly would be the type of thing that would have appeared very prominently in one of the infrared or sublunar all-sky surveys in the recent past. Any undetected companions to the sun would have to be planet-sized objects out in the outer solar system. It's also very unlikely that the sun had a binary companion in the past. It would simply take a lot of energy to eject an entire star from orbit around the sun. Either the sun never had a companion, or we would be able to see the companion today. Brilliant. Thanks for clearing that one up, George. Our final question comes from Mark C., who asks, can you tell me what the brightest planets are as viewed from the other planets? I.e., if I was standing on Mars, would Jupiter be the brightest thing in my sky apart from the sun? Or would the Earth or Venus be brighter because they are closer to the sun and therefore reflect more sunlight? What about way out at Neptune? Would Uranus, Saturn, or Jupiter be the brightest? This is not a trivial question to answer. Instead of staying up very late at night playing Bioshock, I stayed up very late at night working on deriving the equations needed to calculate the brightness of one planet as seen from another planet. And I also got some very useful help from Ian McDonald on this. If I got the calculations correct, Venus is the brightest planet that you would see from another planet on Mercury, Earth, Mars, or Jupiter. If you're on Venus, the brightest planet that you would see in the sky is Earth. And if you're on Saturn, Uranus, or Neptune, the brightest planet in the sky is Jupiter. When observing from a planet in the inner solar system, Venus looks bright not because it's closer to the sun, but partly because it is closer to your planet than the gas giants in the outer system, and partly because it reflects a higher fraction of the sunlight falling on its surface than any of the other planets do. And the term for the fraction of light that's reflected by a planet is called albedo. So Venus has one of the highest albedos of any object in the solar system, if not the highest albedo. When observing planets from one of the gas giants, though, Jupiter appears brighter, partly because it has a large diameter, and partly because the distance light travels from the Sun to Jupiter, when it appears at its brightest, to your planet, is smaller than the equivalent distances for the other gas giants. Great. Well, that's an interesting one that we can hopefully verify in the near future far future when we end up landing on those planets. Or we may already uh, be able to see this in some of the observations of probes that have been sent into the outer solar system. Very true. Thanks a lot, George, for answering all of our questions. Thanks for that, George and Indy. And now it's time for the feedback section of the show. Well, we didn't have any posts, but we had a really nice email sent in by Steve Arman in California. And he said, thanks all so much for taking the time and energy to be part of such a wonderful and interesting outreach for astronomy. And he goes on to say lots of other really nice things. And he says, what an incredibly vibrant and active time in astrophysical research and discovery this is. And he himself is an amateur astronomer and he does astro imaging. 
in ways, he says, that could be hardly imagined 20 to 30 years ago. So thank you very much. We wish you very good luck with your astronomical imaging. On Facebook, we've had a couple of comments. For first from Russ Jenkins, who commented, Firestorm or overstretched spaghetti. Sounds like my cooking. <laughs> and mine too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to the previous episode, isn't it? And also, Jim Gallant posted, I love your show, folks. It keeps me awake when I'd rather fall asleep at my job building watches. So I'm glad we're keeping you awake. (laughs) (laughs) Building watches sounds quite intricate. That sounds like a very interesting job. Yeah, glad to know that we can uh, be of service to some people. (laughs) On Twitter, Hal Sandback says, On my daily commute, I get a wonderful glimpse of the level. Uh, And he says he's glad to see it seem to have survived Wind-mageddon unscathed. Um, yep, there were extremely strong winds uh, around Manchester um, recently, and uh, thankfully nothing nothing bad has happened to to the Lowell telescope. No, I think quite a few trees fell down in the Arboretum at Jodrell Bank, but the telescope was fine. We had the, the telescope on lockdown and completely monitored to make sure no gusts of wind got to it. And we've got a, a more interesting tweet here from Coco Nino, which is uh, slightly football-related, so some of us at the Jodcast do like football as well. So um, he says, listening to Brentford versus Crew on BBC London, and the level keeps getting mentioned. Uh, he also says, come on, Brentford. So, well, <laughs> I guess hope springs eternal for, for Brentford fans. But. I believe Brentford are doing quite well this year. But also he says Brentford versus Crew, whereas if the level was getting mentioned, presumably it was actually in Crew. Yeah. Maybe that should have been Crew versus Brentford depending on your bias. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Paul Crowther and Neil Harrison for the interviews. The editors were India Clerk, Sally Cooper and Mark Perver, and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time, Jod on! Jod on.